We're traveling through the book of James. James has been asking rhetorical questions and then answering them. Now he just makes a statement. So he says this, James 4.11. You can open up to that passage. He says this, do not speak evil against one another, brethren. This is about the third or fourth time that James has hit on the problem of people's mouths. I guess 2,000 years ago, people's mouths got them in trouble. I'm so glad that we have grown beyond that as a civilization. <laughs> oh. One theologian said, from Genesis 3 on, people's mouths have been the biggest problem. But he said, he thought, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did not talk to each other. They sang to each other. That when you had a conversation, you would actually sing, because the only time we get conversation between Adam and Eve, it's a poem. It's a song. I thought, how cool would that be? Like, no matter what someone says to you, if they sing it, you're kind of okay with it. Like, they can say hard things to you, like, you make me so mad. I hate you. All right. Well, you sang it so it doesn't feel so bad. Thank you. Right? So what he's going to say here, James is going to say, is his final two lessons on the tongue. And they're gossip and God's will. And they're good ones. So check this out. End of verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Do not command, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. What does that mean? Does it mean we always have to talk rainbows and sunshine about people? Like we can never like say almost reality? So if someone that you know is super lazy and they put down your name as a reference and you get a call about this guy, what are you supposed to say about them? Are you supposed to like be cryptic and be like, well, you'd be very fortunate to get this guy to work for you. <laughs> Wait for it. You have to do stuff like that where you're like, oh, it's kind of the truth. It depends on how you take that. Right? What does that mean? James is a man who has meditated long in the book of Proverbs. And so you can just go to the book of Proverbs and there's so much about gossip and slander. And really, here's what gossip and slander is. It's repeating unhelpful information about another person. And James would say, don't do that. And I would say, that's super hard not to do. Because gossip, in fact, Proverbs says, gossip's like a choice morsel. Gossip, you know what it's like? It's like ice cream. 
You know it's gonna hurt you tomorrow, but man, it tastes so good right now. It's so tasty to repeat and to hear things about people, isn't it? So I'll give you my own confession. Uh, Things are growing here and there's new people that have come and they've come for all kinds of reasons because the kids ministry or men's ministry or say families or home bridging or you guys are inviting, you guys are nice, whatever it is. And every once in a while I have a conversation with a new couple and they'll say, well, we left this church because this church, the pastor did this or something bad about that church. And on the outside, I'm like, oh, that's terrible. But on the inside... I'm like, yes, yum. We're so much better than that. Praise God. Is that too honest for you? Because we all do it, don't we? You hear something bad about a marriage or relationship or a work thing, and you're like, oh, that's terrible. But inside you're like, oh, I like this. Right? That's gossip. It's like a choice morsel. Yummy. James says, don't do it. It's hard not to. So what do we do? I think you have to change the flavor of slander. So a bunch of years ago, my little sister, she loved to suck her thumb. Like the choicest morsel in the world was a good thumb suck. And my mom tried everything to get her off of that. Couldn't until she bought this stuff that you would paint on her thumb. And then when she sucked her thumb, it tasted horrible. I don't know what it was made from, but 1980, probably lead and mercury. But it worked, man. It changed the flavor. I think you have to do that with slander. Well, how? I think there's two ways. Number one, one way to change the flavor of slander is when it happens to you. When someone repeats unhelpful, even untrue information about you, and it gets back to you, and just you see what happens, and it changes like, oh. And the next time you think about slandering, God's Spirit brings that to your memory. You're like, yeah, I don't want to do that to somebody. And that's a horrible way to learn. There's another way to learn, I think. And it's this, you make a pact with God's spirit. And you say this, if I slander somebody, I'm gonna go apologize to that person. That when God's spirit, and he's so good about reminding you, you shouldn't have said that, now you gotta go make it right. And you go do that a couple times with somebody and say, you know, I repeated some bad information about you. You're not gonna wanna do it again. Because it's just like wounded from that. Ah, I don't like that, Right? So James is super, super, super serious. Don't do it. Why? He says, here's why. You become a judge. You sit there and say, man, I can't believe they did this or I can't believe they did that, whatever it is. But the problem with that, when you and I judge as humans, we only have a fraction of the information. We don't know motives. We don't know the backstory to things. We're so limited when we judge. I'll give you an example. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, a very cool guy gave me four tickets to an OSU football game. It was Washington, University of Washington versus Oregon State. So I'm like, sure, I'll take him. It was a Friday night game at seven o'clock at night. So I took my son, Elijah, he's 12, one of his buddies, Luke, and then Myron, my six-year-old. And we go up to this game, worst game I've ever watched. Eight yards of offense in the second half for Oregon State. Not a single first down. Worst game ever. And I am an OSU alum. I've been to terrible games at Oregon State. This was the worst. So not the best game. And I'm sitting in this seat. There's an aisle in front of me and stairs on the side of me. Just, it's like the corner of Interstate 5 and I-80. Just, it's like, right? 
two minutes into the game. There's this lady come walking up the steps. She's got two of the biggest beards I've ever seen in my life. Like just balancing them because they're so full, right? She's walking up these stairs. Right when she gets to my level, she trips and throws them on me. I'm just like, boom, ah! Like tidal wave of beer off me, down on everybody, down the steps. She's just standing there. Sorry. Walks off and goes get more. I'm like, ah, right? So I'm just in a puddle, a lake of beer. And the beer, because it was so much, it just went down these steps, like 12 steps, and it's freezing cold, so it's not drying. Just pools of beer down the steps. So now for the rest of the game, three hours, people are walking up, they see the beer, they look up, they see me, and they're just like, oh. And I'm like, what do you think I did, man? Do you think I took two beers? And I'm like, yeah, go Beavers! I mean, think for a second. Oh. The worst was, middle of the third quarter, there's this really kind-looking, like 65-year-old grandma lady who's probably making a little bit extra money at the games. She's got this little bucket, like cute little bucket of kitty litter. She's got these paper towels under her arm and this little broom. And she's coming up. She's got this big smile. She stops, looks up, sees me. I try to like weakly smile like, I'd love to talk to you about this. She just goes, ah, turns around and walks away. I'm like, no, I didn't do anything. That is slander. You have no idea the backstory. You're just judging on the puddle of beer. Okay, we got home at one in the morning, so I like took off all my beer clothes and left them in the, like right in front of the washing machine. The next morning, my wife was like, what in the world? What are you doing with your son? (laughs) Hold on. There's one judge. When we start judging, here's what we become. We become refs. Blow our whistles and we throw these flags and give penalties and no one remembers a ref. Do you know that? There's no MVP for the ref. There's no Heisman Trophy for the ref. They just penalize and blow their whistles and do that. The best advice I ever got was when I was looking at being a pastor, John Corson said this to me. He said, Matt, always remember this. It's your job to love people and it's God's job to judge them. Okay, I like that job better. It's my job to love people and let God judge them. And this was modeled to me so well by a man once. So I lived up at OSU. We had six roommates in this tiny little duplex. And I had moved in, a guy had moved out. And uh, there was a moment when we were all like in our tiny little living room and we're like eating our top ramen and we're talking. When one of the roommates said to Paul Londigan, he said, hey, Paul, remember last year when that previous roommate and he was from LA, that previous roommate called you a dumb hick from Oregon. And you know what that means when a group of men are standing around? That means open season on that guy's character, right? It means it's time to just blast him and blast him and say all the nasty things about him and he's such an idiot and all that. When you're done, maybe you'll pray for him, but it's open season right now. (laughs) This is what Paul did. Paul, with his bullet top ramen said, 
yeah, I've chosen not to see him that way, turned around and walked out of the room. I was like, whoa, he became my best friend. You know why? Because I said, I can trust him. He will not slander me. He will not gossip about me. He's safe. We need a bunch of safe people. And maybe for some of us, we need to make James 4.11 the wallpaper on our phone while you're dialing it. Oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe for some of us, we need it tattooed on our hand. Oh, wait a second. Because the damage done by the tongue, James 3, it's a fire. It burns out relationships. It destroys people. So do not speak evil against one another's brothers. Well, when can I talk? You can talk when concealing the information will hurt that person worse. And that is a long prayer with the judge of the universe. God, what do I do with this information? Should I conceal it? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Or will that actually hurt the person worse? And that is a decision you got to walk out with the judge of the world. So number one, gossip. Number two, God's will. Verse 13, come now, you who say, once again in your mouth, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend there, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's a sin. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to get these plans. There's a saying I have written down at home. Man plans and God laughs. Right? So James says this based on that. Verse 16, don't boast. Don't boast about your big plans. Don't boast about this stuff. Don't boast. But man, I've worked hard on my plans. I'm not lazy. I'm, 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 what? Come on. I've applied myself. I've gone to college. Come on. Here's what is being said. It's like this. There's this book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And in this book, he does this. He looks at some very huge people and then he shows the only reason they got huge was there's a bunch of stuff that they could not control that went right for them. So one of the examples was Bill Gates. So Bill Gates just retook the richest man in the world title and he's been retired for 13 years, giving away his money. I mean, that's crazy. So he's the founder of Microsoft. So he just looked at Bill Gates and there are five things. If one of these five things change, Bill Gates isn't who he is. So he's born in Seattle, middle-class family. They just happen to live near a brand new computer center, one of the few in the world that he's just a mile away from. 
He's got these friends that are mentor computer people, the Boeing situation, right? So there's really brilliant computer dudes already there that begin to mentor him. And he just argues, one of these five things changes and Bill Gates just another nerd at Staples with an easy button. So it takes humility. Humble, like, wow, there's a whole bunch of things that actually went right for me to be who I am. Wow. There's this common grace, right? So you got your MBA or you got your doctorate degree, great. If you were born in the 13th century in Tibet, you're not getting a doctorate or an MBA. It's this humility of saying, right, I should be grateful for the circumstances that are outside of my control. No boasting. And he gives two real good reasons why we shouldn't boast. Number one, Verse 14, uncertainty. He just says, who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? You're making all these plans. You're saying, I'm going to do this stuff. But who knows what tomorrow will bring? Anybody in here willing to say, this is exactly what will happen tomorrow? How much of our news is experts getting together telling us what will happen tomorrow? Isn't that huge? Like, hey, the financial markets, this is what's going to happen with money in the year 2020. Or here's what's going to happen with the impeachment in the next couple of months. Or here's what's going to happen with the housing market in 2020. Right? There's tons of that. The question is, how accurate are the experts? So I had this article. It was so good. It first talked about the stock market. There's been 20 significant stock market crashes. Out of 20 significant stock market crashes, how many of them were predicted by these PhD economic people? Three. A three out of 20. If you're in school, what's a three out of 20? It's, a, it's an F, right? With all their PhDs and all their, it, three out of 20. And then they looked at 22 of the biggest international banks in the world, your JP Morgans, your Chase Finance, these things, international. And these banks, they have to have their money in certain spots in order to equal things out. So currency exchanges are hugely important to them. How the euro stacks up to the dollar, for instance. So they just looked at these 22 banks over 10 years and all these very, very smart people that are saying, hey, the the exchange rate of the euro versus the dollar will be this. So they looked at 220 different data points, 22 banks, 10 years. In every instance, they were wrong on the exchange rate. The end of the article said this, it would be better to give a dart to a monkey than to hire these doctors. I just thought that was so great. Forget it, dude. We're firing our whole economic team. We're giving a dart to a monkey. Throw it. Okay, that's what the exchange rate will be. How awesome is that? Oh, man. Your degree is as good as a monkey throwing a dart, buddy. We don't know the future. How many of you had this great idea to make money and you didn't make money on it? I'm going to flip a house. Yeah, yeah, something got flipped, but it wasn't the house. I'm going to make money on this project. I had this guy that wanted me like a number of years ago. Remember those magnetic bracelets that you could put on 
and they give you superpowers, like no one could push down your arm, or whatever. He's like, dude, invest in these, they're new. I'm like, no, I don't think so. Anyone wearing a magnetic bracelet today? Yeah. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. This is the point of James. Be humble. Be humble. I think it's really good for people to take some time and to write out everything that they cannot control. I can't control the weather. I can't control the economy. I can't control the news. I can't control the government. I can't control people. I can't control the traffic. I can't control my spouse. I'll repeat that one. You can't control your spouse. (laughs) Most of us can't control our pets. So James is saying, be humble. Don't be boasting and arrogant. Have some humility because of the uncertainty of life. And then number two, because of the brevity of life. He says, life is like a mist that appears and disappears. And that's your life. This word mist is great. Here's the best way I think to explain it. You know, people that vape. So they'll pull up at the stoplight and they'll take just a big drag off their vape pen and they'll roll down their window and they'll blow that vape out. I don't know what those chemicals are. Apparently they kill you though. But that mist, it's amazing how fast it disappears, right? It's like crazy. It's not like steam. It's, like the, it's, like, it's there and it's gone. 200 milliseconds, it's gone. That's your life. It's like that mist. The brevity of life. That's it. So Bill Gates in this article I was reading on him got $100 billion. $100 billion. What do you buy Bill Gates for Christmas? So he was asked, like, you got $100 billion, dude. What would you want more of? This was his reply. More time. Because $100 billion doesn't buy you one more day. The brevity of life. On a Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001, 3,000 people woke up and had no idea that this would be their last day. Because you just don't know the brevity of life. So there's supposed to be this humility. Instead of boasting, using your tongue to boast, here's what James says, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Latin, Deo Valente. It was a term used a lot of years ago when people understood the uncertainty of life much better than we do today. And they would say this, Deo Valente. If God wills, this is what I'm going to do. Deo Valente. Now it can get weird. Some people use like Lord willing just in a weird way. And the context is a year out, right? Lord willing in a year, this is what I'm going to be doing. Some people will use it like short term. Like, hey bro, we're having a meeting in the conference room in five minutes. Can you make it? Lord willing. No, that's weird. You can make it. I'm your boss. You'll be there. The Lord just willed it, okay? (laughs) It's not saying that. It's really a movement of your heart that's saying, listen, I don't control everything. I don't have all the information, but I serve one who does. And ultimately, I want to be in his will. Deo volente. I want to be in his will. It's what David would say in Psalm 51, where he says this, my times are in your hand. 
That's what Moses would say in Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that our hearts might be full of wisdom. Teach us, ground us in this. You are in control. You have it. You do it. Deo valente, God's will. Well, Matt, I would love to know God's will for my life. How do I know God's will for my life? Here's what I think. I think a lot of us need to be recalibrated. And here's what I mean. Uh, Two weeks ago, two Mondays ago, almost three weeks, I went for this hike up into the woods. And I had this, there there was private property kind of on the sides and I didn't want to get off on the private property because I might stumble into a farm and get shot. So I wanted to stay in like the, the public lands. I'll stay in the public lands. So I had this GPS because there was no trail in there. So I had this GPS and I'm following the GPS, staying where I need to stay. But I noticed this, I was getting these big old growth trees. And when I was in there, my GPS would stop working. It would just keep me pinned way back there. So I'd have to wait, 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 get up to somewhere where the trees open and I got a clear spot and I'd just stand there for a second. And then my GPS dot would catch up to where I was actually at, right? I think that needs to happen for a lot of us. We can get so in the woods, so bent down to what we're doing that we just lose contact with heaven. We get, lose contact with Deo Valente. And we need to stop and get our hearts in a space that's open to heaven and open to God's will and willing to hear from him. So this is what I did six years ago. I did it like this. Now I do it a little bit differently. But I did this six years ago and, I, and I've repeated this a couple of times. Um, that day I just fasted all day and then actually left my house, went up on a mountain and just all night just prayed and sought God's will, Dio Valente, till the next morning. Um, when I was doing that, uh, my daughter Bella was 11. She said this as I'm walking out the door, dad, don't go. If you do go, don't die. If you do die, can I have your iPad? <laughs> I didn't die and I still have my iPad. I just went up there and, and what I actually did was I asked these questions of myself. And I would think about this question and I would pray. And then I had a journal, I just wrote whatever God was, I felt like God was impressing on my heart. And these are the questions I wrote, here they are. So number one, it was like a recalibration. And as we enter into 2020, like for me, December is a month of like, okay, let's think. Let's question. Let's be open to heaven. Let's get God's will for 2020. And so this to me is like the prime time to do something like this. So question number one I ask is this. What did I regret this year? I try to go over my year and think about the things that I've done or been involved in or relationships. What over this last year has been a regret? Because I hate regret. There's hardly a worse emotion than regret. But I regret. Number two, if I died today, what would be left undone? I don't want to leave behind a bunch of loose ends to my kids or to my family or other people. I don't want to leave a bunch of loose ends. So what? If I died today, it would be left undone. Number three, has God asked me to do something that I have not obeyed? Real personal. God, did you impress something on my heart in 2019 that I just didn't do? And I start journaling and writing and thinking and praying. Number four, 
How are my relationships with Jesus, my wife, my kids, pastors, neighbors, friends? How are those relationships? And then I pray and I think and I talk to God and try to get recalibrated. And based on that, I usually say, what do I need to repent of? There's something with my wife, something with my friends, something with my kids that I just need to repent of right now, be cleansed of it. Then I go positive. What, what has brought me joy and passion in this last year? What are the things that I'm doing I feel God's pleasure? Like, yes, that's it. That's my stride. What brings you joy? What brings you passion? What am I thankful for? And that list should be huge for a believer. Then finally, I look forward and say, what would I love to see in 2020? If I could dream big and the answer from God was yes, what would my dream be? What would I love to see happen in the coming year? Deo Valente, God willing on all those things. And the Bible says this, it's Isaiah 40, 31. It says, they that wait on the Lord shall mount up with wings like an eagle. What are eagles known for? Vision. Now, what's the key to getting vision like an eagle? Waiting on the Lord. Get an open spot where you can be recalibrated. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Are you weary and wore out by life, by faith? Do you want to stop feeling weary? Stop fainting. Wait on the Lord. Those promises come for those that take the time and say, I'm going to wait on you. Deo Valente. And then James ends this little section cryptically, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Some of us know what we're supposed to be doing and we're not doing it. Some of us are Jonah's in here where God has said, hey, I want you to be doing this. And we've said, no, I'm running the other direction. Some of us, God has impressed on our hearts what we're supposed to do about a relationship and we have not done it yet. We just keep, no, 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 no. Some of us know God is nagging at your heart to share the good news with a family member or a coworker or somebody in your sphere. And you keep saying, no, it's too embarrassing. You can feel it. Ugh. Some of you feel like, man, I took a, a wrong turn a year ago or two years ago, and I'm down a really bad road. What about me? Here's the good news. And I'll explain it like this. A bunch of years ago, it was 2007, before smartphones and iPhones and all that kind of stuff, my sister moved up to our property, and she stayed with us for a while. And she had this U-Haul that needed to be returned. So she was trying to back it up. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll get it down there. So I hopped in her car and she had state-of-the-art technology back in 2007. She had this TomTom GPS. Anyone have a TomTom GPS? Yeah, man, it was like it. And so I'm like, this thing is cool. So I punched in the, direct, or the address to the U-Haul place. And then I get in and this woman's voice starts giving me driving directions. I'm like, that is so familiar. Okay. Wait for it. <laughs> she was in last service. 
So I'm driving along and you know, it's telling you directions. And then I took a wrong turn because it's my city. I know how to get there. Now, when I took a wrong turn, guess what that little device said to me? You moron. What is wrong with you? I'm giving you directions. Come on. Is there something wrong with your ears? You're going to waste 15 minutes and five gallons of fuel. You're an idiot. Now, guess what it said? Recalculating in the sweetest voice ever. I'm like, I love you. I started taking wrong turns on purpose just to hear her say it. Recalculating. Listen, that's the good news. Because the Bible is full of men and women taking the wrong turns. And God has consistently come after his kids and said, I'll recalculate. I'll recalculate to the price of my own life to get you back on track. That's the good news. The Bible says this, that his mercies are new every morning. Not every year or every decade. What God is saying is, listen, Matt, when you wake up in the morning, I've got brand new plans for you. Yesterday is gone. Let's start over today. Recalculating. That's the good news. That's the God we serve. Okay? So I don't know of a better way of understanding how much God has given to us and how he'll get us back on track than right there, the table. That we come and we partake. And the one who said, I'll give everything to get Matt Heverly back on track. There's no better way. So I'm gonna, in a minute, pray. You can stand up. On this side, you move that direction, grab communion, sit down this side, this direction, come back. We'll take it together. So Jesus, today, we know James is right. But we also know that we're weak. And we want to lean into your strength this afternoon. We need your spirit to convict and to strengthen us in the way that we use our words. We need to use your open offer that we can come boldly before your throne of grace and receive help in our time of need, that we at any time can come and say, Father, help me. The veil's been torn and we have access to heaven. And so as we come to the table this day, Some of us need to be recalibrated. Some of us need to know we're forgiven. Some of us need to simply know we belong to you and you'll leave the 99 and come after us. Some of us need to know that. And so I pray as we come to the table that the veil between heaven and earth would grow thin. It would be open to us and you would shine down your light into every soul that's accepted Jesus as Savior. Pray this in your name.